0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dakota Piver.
1: My response to this was, I think I might be gay. <laughs> the part that's really fucked up about that is, I'm not gay. That was just the first thing that came to mind.
0: <laughs> that and more, but first, this week's bonus story at patreon.com risk is by Linda
2: Bailey Walsh. Many arguments between my mother and her ended with my mother saying something lovely like, you know, you're no natural beauty. Go put some lipstick on.
0: (laughs) And did you know that if you're at the $10 or more per month level at Patreon, you get the ad-free versions of the episodes right when they come out. And for one-time donations, go to paypal.me slash risk show. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Budos Band behind me now. We're calling this week's episode There and Back. I'll tell you, we've only got a few weeks left of this tumultuous year. We had a lovely live stream, a Holiday Stories live stream this past weekend. And you know, we we still do have uh, stuff coming up. For the year, at thestorystudio.org, you'll find our storytelling workshops like the two-day level one with Amy Salloway on December 12th and 13th. Lots of workshops are always listed at thestorystudio.org. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a really moving story that was shared at one of our recent live streams by Sasha Lilac. But before that, an old friend returns. Jamie Brunson is the executive director at First Person Arts, a storytelling show and organization in Philadelphia. Jamie really wowed us uh, the first time she was on the show, and it's great to have her back. She did one of our recent live streams. Here is Jamie now with a story we call From the Other Side.
4: Hey everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, okay, this is a true story, of course. So I had a different experience in New York City. I mean, I was living the dream. I had just finished my MFA in theater. I was named a new voice in American theater by the Edward Albee Theater Conference, and I had just had a play of mine Red on 42nd Street. That's right, my name was on a sandwich board outside a theater off Broadway. Ooh. Then the phone rang. It was my big sister. It's time for you to come home. No hello, just it's time for you to come home. So suddenly my life as a playwright in New York City was over, just like that. See, I had promised to come home after grad school to help take care of Granny, and it was time to keep that promise. You know, but I was thinking, you know, what about my dreams and my career, my student loans? I was headed right back to where I started without the prize. So I packed up my things, crossed the GW Bridge from Harlem, and put New York City in the rearview mirror. Problem was, when I got home, there wasn't enough room for me and all my New York City stuff in Granny's house. So I put it in storage, and I slept on the couch until I found a place of my own close by. I got a job, and then I finally found an apartment in Swarthmore. That's right where Swarthmore College is. It was just 10 minutes from Granny's house. Now, my granny was an amazing woman, and she had incredible insight. She could see things. Like, she saw an angel in the living room the night her mother died. My sister, she knows when people are going to die before they do. Really. And I have dreams about things that are about to happen, once I even dreamt about the daily number and I was right, 40 <laughs> bucks, yo! <laughs> you know, but we don't talk about it as a family because it either freaks people out or they want us to tell them their future. But it doesn't work like that. See, I don't control my abilities. They, they come and go as they please. And my abilities have either been amplified or muffled based on where I was living. Like in LA crazy stuff was happening to me there. I was having dreams about people around me. Weird strangers would come up to me in the street and well, maybe that's just LA. But now <laughs> Philly, Philly was cool for me. I had no incidents. I was cool. So anyway, I say all that to say the supernatural was never really super to our family. You know, but we're not the only ones who believe this stuff. You know, Celtic people believe there are two worlds, the world of the living and the world of the dead. And they believe that this time of year, like October through November, is when the veil that keeps both worlds apart gets really thin. And that now is the time when spirits from the other side can cross over into our world. Okay, so I'm in my new apartment in Swarthmore, and Swarthmore is a really interesting place to live And Now, I've traveled and lived alone a lot of places, but there is something about the night air in Swarthmore. Now, I'm not dissing you Swarthmore people, but them old mansions, something about the sound of the winds in the trees, it just felt eerie to me, like maybe I didn't belong there. And it made them really creepy at night. Now, there's this word called liminality. It's kind of like the disorientation that happens to people when they're in between. They're not who they were, but they're not who they're going to be. Kind of like that threshold between New York City and home. So one night, around this time of year, I'm in bed asleep in creepy Swarthmore. And I have this dream. True story. So in the dream, a woman that I don't know comes to me. And when I turn to look at her, she tells me not to. Now, I don't want to get sucked in some black psychic hole, right? So I don't look at her. But I know she's older, white, and a stranger to me. I could feel it. And she kept saying over and over again in this dream, I have to show them where the money is. And she just kept saying it over and over again. I've got to show them where the money is. So she proceeded to tell me a lot of details. And she was very precise about what she said. So the next day, I get this email from this guy that worked for me at the theater. And it said, I'm sorry, Jamie, but I'm going to be out of commission for a while. The unthinkable has happened. My eldest sister died suddenly of a heart attack. And I'm like, oh, oh, was that his sister in my dream? What the heck is going on? It's Swarthmore. This place, it got me dreaming about people I don't even know. I knew this place was creepy. And I'm thinking, should I tell him? I mean, this lady in my dream was insistent, and I don't want her coming back tomorrow night, mad because I didn't do what she wanted me to do. But what do I tell him? I mean, how's this conversation going to go? Uh, hi. Don't tell anybody, but I have dreams of dead people. No, I'm not on meds. well yeah I am but that's beside the point (laughs) look I'm just trying to help you and I'm really under a lot of stress here (laughs) fine don't listen to me Uh, by the way don't tell anybody at work okay but I don't want this chick in my head anymore so I send an email back to him I'm so sorry to hear about your loss Please, give me a call right away. I think I may have something to tell you. And all the while, I'm hoping he doesn't call me. But he does. And I say to him, you know, this might sound crazy, but sometimes I have these dreams, and I think I might have a message for you from your sister. And the phone goes silent. Did you know my sister? Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean, Jamie? Uh, Now, you know that when somebody uses your name like that in a sentence, they might as well say, what do you mean, crazy lady? I'm dialing the police. Uh 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 Then when I told him about my dream, I said, you know, she really needed me to tell them where the money is. And I said, does that mean anything to you? And there's another pause. And I'm thinking, "Okay, he's definitely going to call the cops. But instead, he says, Oh, my God, Jamie, she died so suddenly, we don't know where anything is. This is incredible. Tell me, what did she say? Now, I'm not sure how I feel at this point. You know, am I relieved? Am I shocked? But I got to admit, I was curious. We're on an adventure now, right? So in my dream, the woman told me some very specific things. Like, the first thing she told me was that in the top drawer of her desk were three coins, and Mm -hmm. she told me their denomination and how much they added up to. So I asked him to go look for them in her top drawer. Well, sure enough, he went to her house and found the coins exactly where I said they'd be in the exact amount. Okay, this is surreal, because this has never happened. She also told me that she had a $27,000 life insurance policy and she told me exactly where she kept it in her house. Now, I've never been to her house, but her brother goes to look for it and he finds the policy exactly where I said it would be in the exact amount I said it was going to be. Okay, this had to be his sister in my dream, but why me? Okay, this is interesting but mama don't want dead people visiting me at night. Let's just say I'm firm on that. So the next time he called me, I said, I, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but there's one last thing she wants you to have. What's that? He said. $17 million. Whoa. And there's this long pause and he says, Jamie? My sister did not have that kind of money. Look, all I know is what she said. And remember, everything else she said was spot on. That's all I can tell you. Because see, by now I'm Susie Psychic. Okay, I'm ready to charge. Well, did she tell you where it was? Nope, sorry. That's all I have for you. If I were you, I'd tear that house apart till I found it. <sighs> So, you know, before the dream, my granny asked me if I was afraid to live in Swarthmore by myself. And I told her no, so she wouldn't worry. But the real answer was yes. Yes, I'm afraid of living there. In fact, I was afraid of everything. Of missing my chance to do something with my life. Of being interrupted over and over again and never getting it. Whatever it was. I was afraid of losing hope. So a few days later, I'm at the gas station, right? And I'm pumping gas. And I look up at a sign above me. The lottery has a jackpot of $17 million. Mm. There it is. There's the money. Mm. So I called her brother and I told him, look, the lottery is $17 million. That's where the money is. And I asked him if his sister played the lottery. And he said she did. And I told him, you look for that lottery ticket, or else you play her numbers. Wow. Heck, I should have asked him what them numbers were. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm not sure if he ever got the $17 million. I actually don't even remember much about him after that call. Wow, come to think of it, that's odd. You know, up to that point, no matter how spot on I was with my dreams and predictions... I still had doubts about, well, this journey we're all on. Like, when it ends, does it end? But this dream was proof positive to me. There is something more. And I've got access to that never-ending whatever it is. So I guess that means that no matter what, we're all on a course that doesn't end here. And just maybe anything is possible. Thank you.
0: Welcome to the virtual stage, Sasha Lilac.
2: Yeah. It was the summer of 2012 and I had just found out that I was pregnant for the very first time. I never expected to be a parent. I wasn't planning on getting pregnant, but the second that I saw that little strip turn blue, I knew I was just going to give it everything I had and try to be the best parent that I could to this little baby. And my husband was excited too. And by the time it finally came to go to the doctor, we were both just there, little happy pregnant parents. Um, We had just moved to Minneapolis. We hadn't been there very long. We were kind of turning a corner on a new city. And at the doctor, I gave so many blood tests and did so many tests and samples and saliva and... All of these different tests and genetic tests and then I went back to work and the doctor had said you know we'll see you in four weeks it's so early we don't need to see you very much so I went back to my desk I was a stock trader um, entering stock transactions and I got a call to my direct line which was kind of rare Um, so I picked up and I said oh hello and it was the doctor she had called me just immediately after I got back to my desk and she said well hey I need you to come back in for another test and I said, well, I just gave you like 10 vials of blood. What could you possibly need? She was like, well, we have to do another test. And I said, well, can't it just wait until next time? I Does it have to be like right now? And she was like, yeah, it does. And so I paused and I said like, well, what kind of test is this? And she said, it's your HIV test. And the room just stopped and I had to say oh okay and she said yeah I tested it once and it was positive and I tested it again and it was positive and I need you to come back again so we can do a third test and I tried to be as professional as I could and I looked down at my little sticky note and I had just written HIV plus as if it were a stock quote that I could just type into the computer And I looked over at all of the males sitting around me and I crossed off the sticky note and I tried to put on my professional voice like, oh, yes, well, I'll be so happy to come back and do that test. Sure. And I just put the phone down and I walked out of the office. I don't even know how I finished those stock transactions or told my boss. I just walked out and I went back to the doctor and she said, well, these first tests can technically be inconclusive until we get this third test for the virus. And this third test is just looking for the presence of the virus in your blood. And so I went into the lab and I gave another vial of blood. And the lab told me, well, hey, we're going to be closed because it's the 4th of July week. The 4th of July was on a Wednesday that year. So we're going to be closed Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday for the the holiday. So you won't know the results of this until Monday. And I just tried to take it all in stride and act like, well, of course, of course, I'm not HIV positive. And I could tell that the doctor didn't really think that I was either, but there was something that the doctor and the lab technicians and no one else knew. And that was that a few years before I had taken a trip to California to visit a friend and I had had unprotected sex and spent the night with him. And it was a long weekend of that kind of activity because I wasn't planning on it, I wasn't being safe, and I certainly wasn't expecting it. Um, While I was drinking, my friend in California told me so many things that I just couldn't, I wasn't mature enough to believe. Like, oh, I've always wanted this to happen, and oh, I've always thought about what we would be like as a couple – and I believed them and I wanted to be with him, even though I was married. And I came back to the Midwest and I found out that all of those things were a lie. He was just saying those lies to, you know, get some girls to sleep with him, get his friends to sleep with him, and that he had done it several times before. And so I had to tell my husband what I had done in California. And we went to marriage counseling and we spent all of this time, like, kind of rebuilding our marriage and trying to figure out what to do from here because. It had been so painful to be married and have your wife cheat on you that we just had to completely start over and spend all of these weeks and appointments just rebuilding. And we had finally gotten there. We were together. We were going to have a baby. Only now I have HIV and I have to tell him (laughs) that I have HIV. And I kept thinking about this baby that was going to be brought into the world with HIV and how unfair that was and how I wasn't going to be able to nurse because you can pass HIV in through the bloodstream. And my husband was going to leave me and I would be homeless and I would have to explain to my family why I was getting a divorce. And that would lead back to that whole weekend in California. And I just knew I couldn't tell my parents anything. I couldn't tell my family anything. They were not going to understand So I tried, you know, after Googling HIV for like eight hours, I decided I was going to go out and hang out with a friend at a concert. and I wouldn't drink anything, but we would just chat. And I said, well, like, hey, so I had this test come back, uh, the doctor, and they think I might be HIV positive. And she said, well, of course, you're not HIV positive. Come on. How would you be HIV positive? Forget about it. It's It's a fake, you know, it's a face positive. You don't have it. Because my friend knew like I did that my husband would not be the kind of guy to go out and do anything that would have contracted HIV to give it back to me. And my friend just believed that I was also that kind of girl who wouldn't do that kind of thing. And I couldn't tell her either. And I could just kind of feel the world just like shuddering in on me at that moment because nobody was going to understand. And I couldn't explain it to them either. So... I just kept checking all night, every weekend. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, but I could just refresh the Google and see if maybe there was like some lab technician who came in to the lab over the weekend and they happened to test my results and like upload it online, even though I knew also that they just don't give you those HIV results online because of people like me. Um, you couldn't get too upset. And I decided in that time that if The test was definitely positive and it wasn't just a false positive that i was going to walk over to the major highway near my house and climb over the fence and throw myself into traffic because i couldn't do this to this baby i couldn't saddle it with a pre-existing medical condition and i couldn't afford to change everything about myself to raise the baby alone and so i finally got to monday I finally made it through the whole workday and scheduled my appointment right at the end with the doctor. We sat down in her office and she scooted her knees right next to mine and she opened the file and she said, well, it looks like you don't have HIV. It was a false positive. Um, Sometimes pregnant women will emit or produce one of the proteins that the HIV virus test is looking for. The test is looking for three proteins and sometimes pregnant women make one of them. And if you just have one of those proteins, the test is going to come back positive. And it was false. I didn't have it. The third test had confirmed. And the doctor was just looking at me like, oh, well, I just really want to thank you for your professionalism and how you handled this on the phone. You were so kind. And hardly anyone is that kind to me on the phone when I give them this kind of news. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought, well, how could anyone be positive But I said thanks? And as I walked out of that office, I could just feel myself letting go of having that whole relationship that had decomposed for so long and like I could get rid of the guilt and the fear that I had felt with the person in California and I could just look forward to being a normal happy pregnant woman again who of course didn't have HIV and put that chapter behind us of what had happened and just kind of move forward and that's what I did (laughs)
0: This is Risk. This is Smashing Pumpkins behind me now, going back to my heyday. And before that we heard from Sasha Lilac and before that a little interstitial by our episode editor Jeff Barr. Oh, and by the way, Jamie Brunson's story about the psychic dreams at the Q&A in the live stream. You know, after the show we do a Q&A and the audience made her promise that she would investigate <laughs> what with the guy and the $17 million. I said, oh, my God, I, I would have uh, you know, told the guy, look, I am coming over and ripping up all the floorboards till we find it. And you're going to owe me uh, quite a finder's fee, not to mention crash test dummies. Wait a minute. Why'd Why did I bring up crash test, test dummies? dummies? Is that, Is that the, the last, last time? time? They'll come, They'll up, come in up in this episode. episode. Oh, and hey, the holidays are here, guys. And did you know that we have all kinds of merch at risk-show.com shop? Shirts, totes, mugs, the Risk book. Again, that's all at risk-show.com shop. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from, well, this is a little throwback to when we last did the Risk Live show in the city of Seattle, back when we were doing shows, you know, traveling around the country. And this story is by Dakota Piver, who you can find on Instagram at Dakota underscore Piver. And here he is now with a story we call The Accident
1: Wow, thank you, thank you. (laughs) So, one night back when I was in high school, me and my good friends, James and Amelia, went down to the park nearby my house to go smoke some weed together. So, James and I, we go back a ways. Um, We first met in eighth grade, and to this day we're actually still really good friends. Actually, back in eighth grade, he's the first person I ever split a fifth of vodka with. (laughs) And um, he was just super down in the dumps and crying and basically said, life is so hard, man, and I don't like the girl I'm with, and I just want to kill myself. And my response to this was, I think I might be gay. The part that's really fucked up about that is I'm not gay. That was just the first thing that came to mind (laughs) when I was just trying to make sure he doesn't kill himself. (laughs) And then there's Amelia. Um, Amelia is just a super cool, laid-back person, and she doesn't mind hanging out with the guys. She's just all around really awesome. So the three of us, we go down to the park and from Amelia's sweater pocket, she pulls out a little glass pipe and some weed. And so we grab a seat on the park bench. It's right next to the street light and we just light up. We don't worry about people seeing us. We're just sitting there sharing this bowl and laughing about just the dumbest shit. Once we finish smoking, we head back to my house. And once we get inside, my parents see that I've brought Amelia home. And they're not happy about this at all. And the reason being, back on my 15th birthday, Amelia brought crushed up hydros to the party. And for those of you who don't know, when I'm talking about hydros, I'm talking about um, the painkiller hydrocodone. So it's really not that bad. It's just you know something you get prescribed. Um, <laughs> and so my mom went into my bedroom and found this little baggie of white powder and thought it was cocaine so she comes out to the party and grabs me by the arm and yanks me into my room shuts the door behind us and she just looks at me and says I thought you were better than this and I just tell her no no, it's okay it's not cocaine I promise it's just hydros that's all (laughs) and so again they see that I brought her home and they immediately just say, no, she's not welcome here. We've already talked about this. She needs to go home. So Amelia goes ahead and calls her mom. And the really concerning thing that we hear from this conversation is that her mom tells her, I think you've been smoking weed. We're gonna drug test you tonight. But fortunately, she's already really well prepared. And back at her house, she has a jar of pee sitting ready to go. Just for this occasion. <laughs> um, the main issue that we still had to face is that her eyes were really still bloodshot and she just completely reeked of weed. So this was a problem we needed to fix and we need to fix it fast. So the three of us run downstairs to my bathroom sink and I start splashing water up in her face because we didn't have eye drops. So with my genius thinking... I was thinking, if we just splash some water up in there, that'll hydrate them, right? (laughs) I mean, it kind of worked, kind of. And then once we got finished up with that, she turns to me and she asks, hey, can you spray me down with some Axe? And in most cases, this would be totally fine, totally an okay thing to do. But Amelia is super, super allergic to perfumes and colognes, even like scented body lotions and I knew this. Everyone at the high school knew this, because there was one time in English class that all it took was smelling the perfume that had been sprayed in that room, and she started having trouble breathing and had to get rushed to the ER, just from the smell of it. So I knew I was taking a huge risk, but I just wanted to be a good friend, you know. so I started from the base of her neck and sprayed her all the way down to her kneecaps. And all the way back up. I even made her turn around just to spray off her back and really make sure that she didn't smell like weed. And she didn't, you know. Now she smelled like a high school boy's locker room. Which was a total dead giveaway, but, you know, we were high at the time, so. (laughs) (laughs) We just assumed as long as she doesn't smell like weed, we're in the clear. (laughs) So her mom pulls into the driveway, and Amelia opens the door and she turns around to me and gives me a nice hug and just tells me thank you. And then she leaves. So me and James, we head back downstairs. We turn on the Xbox. We load up Left 4 Dead. We start eating some Pringles to help with the munchies. And we just go back to hanging out, really. Until we get a call. I'm sitting on the opposite end of the couch so I can actually hear the phone conversation. But... I can see from James's face while he's on the phone, he goes completely wide-eyed and wide-mouthed, and is just on the verge of saying, oh my fucking God, and then he hangs up. And so I ask him, what, what's going on? He explains to me that when Amelia's mom picked Amelia up, she could smell the ax, and she asked her, where's your EpiPen? She didn't have her EpiPen. Her mom didn't have Amelia's EpiPen, and now she was starting to have trouble breathing. Now she was starting to have that allergic reaction. So they had to drive eight miles, and they get to the gurney, and she's not breathing anymore. And then they get her to the ER, the emergency room, and get her hooked up to the machines, and she's flatlining. So James finishes explaining this story to me by saying, She's dead man, she's dead. And I am just paralyzed. I can't move at all from where I'm sitting on the couch. And I really wanna just run to the bathroom and go cry it out, but I can't. I'm just stuck in this sofa seat, just completely consumed by paranoia and fear and just pure sadness, you know? You know, in one part of my brain, I'm thinking, oh my God, I just killed Amelia. What about her family, you know? And what about her friends? And then there's a paranoid side of my head that's thinking, oh shit, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be tried for manslaughter for this? Like, is this what manslaughter is? And how many years am I expecting? Because, you know, now I'm a murderer. And so I just sit there in the couch just hyperventilating and losing my breath. And James, you know, he's fucked up by the situation too and is worried about Amelia, but now he's seeing me hyperventilating and I can't tell him a thing because he didn't see me spray her down with the body spray. He doesn't know I'm the reason our friend is dead. And so for seven minutes, He's trying to get just something, anything out of me. And I'm trying so hard to just hold everything back. And then we get another phone call from Amelia's mom. And this time, again, I can't hear it, but I can see on James's face that he's starting to shift to a little smile. He hangs up the phone, and I ask him, what? And he explains to me that everything's gonna be okay. Amelia's alive. They got the shot of adrenaline into her chest. She's stable now. We're all good. And I guess when the doctors and her mom were trying to ask why they let us spray her down with the body spray, she told them she just didn't want to get caught for smoking weed. And the doctors and her mom just laughed about it. And James was now laughing about the situation too. But I wasn't. I was still really fucked up about what had just happened. And God, I just felt so guilty, you know. On the bright side, I'm no longer a murderer, but I just felt so wrong and guilty for what I had done. And that guilt carried on to the following Monday when I saw her at school. She came up to me in the hall and she again thanked me. But I just felt, I just felt so guilty still for what I had done. But life just went on normally and it's almost like I never killed Amelia, but <laughs> but you know that guilt and some of those feelings still carry on to this day, you know, now I am extremely cautious when I'm under the influence of anything and I'm way too aware of every single action I'm doing and every single consequence, every one of those actions is going to have. And maybe that's why I'm so anxious now, but... Maybe that's a good thing, thank you.
0: Is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The New Pornographers Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Dakota Piver, who you can find on Instagram at Dakota underscore Piver. Each week, the stories you hear on the show are edited by Jeff Barr, John LaSala, Chris Gersbeck, and Samir Zarif. Remember, you can always pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash Submissions, And another gift you can give this season are the customized Cameo video greetings that I make for fans at Cameo.com slash Allison. Also, you can look at the notes for this episode in your podcast player. You'll see lots of links to check out, such as how you can hire me as a coach at KevinAllison.com. And come chat about the stories you heard on the episode today on Facebook at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group or on our subreddit at Risk Podcast. Folks, today's the day. Take a
3: risk. It was prime at the time, but the laws have changed, yeah. It was prime. The time but the lives have changed yeah
0: Once there was
4: this girl
0: who got into an accident and couldn't come to school. My really
4: baby
0: finally came back. He yes. How huh? Planted from black into bright white. He said that it was from when the kiosk smashed him so hard. <laughs>